for the rest of us, we're going to be in Mark. Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 12 this morning, Mark 12, 13 through 17. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up and follow along uh, as I read aloud, starting in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's pray. Lord, as we approach your word this morning, we first just pause and say thank you for the reminder of the words of that song we just sang. Uh, I know all too often in my life, I think the key to a relationship with you is how hard or how fast I can hold on to you. And yet we're reminded in scripture that you are the one who holds us. So we say thank you for that, God. We say thank you that because of what you have done on our behalf, that we are able to approach you in prayer with confidence and assurance that you hear us and you will do what is best for us. And Lord, as we approach this time, focus on your word this morning. We ask that you would help us to be increasingly conformed to the image of your son. Lord, as we consider this passage specifically, we ask that you would use it to transform us, that through your spirit, you would be at work in our hearts, convicting us, pointing us to the message of the gospel, exposing sin and idolatry in our hearts, places where we continue to hold fast in our rebellion against you. God, help us to be a people who hear the call of the gospel and who respond to it with a cry of faith and repentance and obedience. That's in Jesus' name and to that end that we pray. Amen. Well, this is going to come as a surprise to, I think, most of you this morning, but there's an election later this year. Of course we all know that, yeah. There's an election coming in November, and we're probably, at least here in Iowa, we're, we're catching a little bit of a breathing room because the caucuses have finished, and, and so we're getting, you know, we, we can see other commercials now um, as, as we are on the television. Um, and yet, of course, we also know that that's going to pick up here again in the future. And this morning's passage is one that is commonly cited in the discussion of how Christians should interact with the government, how Christians should interact with politics. And, and it does indeed have a lot to say about that. 
It is an important passage, um, and it really serves as the foundation for later passages in the, in the New Testament, passages like 1 Peter chapter 2, where Peter is writing about how Christians should interact with the government. The same thing comes uh, to, into play in Romans chapter 13. Paul is writing to the church in Rome and says, this is how you should interact with Caesar. This is how you should interact with the government. And this passage really serves as the foundation for everything that is said in those subsequent passages. And yet, while this passage certainly does touch on the importance and the role uh, of how we as Christians engage in the political process, uh, Jesus' main point is actually something completely different. In fact, if we were just to stop and say, all right, what does this passage have to say about how I am supposed to interact with the government, then we'd actually be missing Jesus' main point, what Jesus is trying to teach to each and every one of us this morning. In fact, this topic of government and how we interact with the government is only the, really the setting for Jesus' main point, and that is something that is far more challenging for us this morning. If you uh, have been with us for a while, you know that we've been working our way steadily through the Gospel of Mark. The last couple of weeks, we've been looking at this last week of Jesus' life, the final week of Jesus' life as he is going to the cross. And this passage takes place on Tuesday. The cross, of course, takes place on Good Friday, just a couple days after this passage. At the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, Mark begins by making this declaration of who Jesus is. He says, Jesus is the Son of God, and this is his gospel. This is his message. And he begins by quoting the Old Testament and saying, there is coming a day where God himself will come into his temple. And he sends this messenger, John the Baptist, to prepare the way of the people. God wants his people to be ready for his return. And about a month ago, when we first looked at Mark chapter 11, we see this passage as commonly referred to as the triumphal entry, and that's exactly what happens. Jesus, the Son of God, comes into his temple. This moment that the, the gospel of Mark has been building to all this time, and the question is, are people ready? And there's no one waiting for him. The temple is empty. What's more, not only are people not ready for the Lord's arrival, they're actually actively opposed to him, actively hostile to him. And this morning's passage continues that theme of confrontation and hostility between Jesus and the religious leaders. As we see this passage, we're going we're to see that it breaks into three primary sections. First, there's the trap, then there's the Jesus's challenge, and then finally, there is your response. The trap Jesus' challenge, not just to the religious authorities, but also to us this morning. And then the question of how each and every one of us will respond. So let's follow the thread of this passage, looking at each of these sections in turn. The, the passage starts with the trap in verses 13 and 14. It's set by the religious authorities for Jesus. Mark, as he's talking about this trap, gives us really two uh, questions or two answer, uh, answers to two questions that help us understand this trap. First is who, and then second is how. Who is setting the trap? How are they setting the trap? The who in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. We saw a couple of weeks ago as we were looking at, the, at Mark 11 and 12 as a whole that there is this increasing conflict that takes place in these two chapters. 
It's this building conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of Jerusalem. And as we see, starting in Mark chapter 11, verse 27, that's the first of seven stories of conflict between Jesus and the religious authorities of Jerusalem. And each story builds on that conflict. And this morning's passage is the third of those stories of conflict. In each of these stories, we see that, that Mark is really doing two things. First and most basically, he's telling us the immediate cause of what led to Jesus' crucifixion. Mark is concerned with history, and so he's telling us what actually happened so that we can understand why Jesus ended up on a cross. Of course, we all understand that, that God had this in his plan from the very beginning, and yet there were also very real human things that led to Jesus' crucifixion. And so first and foremost, Mark is just saying, hey, this is what happened. There is this conflict. There is this, this hostility from the religious leaders toward Jesus that leads to his death on Friday. But second, and I think just as important for us, is that these stories of conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders, they're actually a, an important opportunity for each and every one of us to check our own hearts. As we draw ever nearer to the cross, to this message of the cross, we have an opportunity to examine our own hearts, to wrestle with the question of, am I like the religious leaders? And so two weeks ago, we looked at this passage about Jesus's authority and where does it come from, and we asked the question at the end of it, does Jesus have authority in my life? Over every area of my life, does Jesus reign as Lord? Last week, Pastor Kurt led us through this parable of judgment that Jesus says to the religious leaders of the day. And, and the question from that passage, from that parable, is this question of, of what is the foundation of your life? Is your life built on Jesus or is it built on something else? And if Jesus is not the cornerstone of your life, then you need to, to beware. You need to look out because if Jesus is not that cornerstone, then he comes as a crushing stone to destroy any other foundation in your life. It's again a question that forces us to ask where we are in our own lives. This morning's passage is no different. In the context of this question about politics and, and government, there's a, a deeper, more important question, and that is, what role does Jesus have in my life? The they of this passage, the religious leaders, they've adapted a, adopted a new uh, a approach, a new tactic to trying to get rid of Jesus. Instead of going to Jesus themselves, they decide to begin sending people to him in order to trap him. That's the who of this passage. While it says that the, the Pharisees and the Herodians go to Jesus with this question, it's really at the, at the request of the religious leaders. Of course, the, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they're not coerced into this trap. It's not like they're being forced to do this. They also don't care much for Jesus. We know earlier in the Gospel of Mark that these two groups began working together with the intention of getting rid of Jesus. Mark chapter 3, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. And as we consider the, the context of these two groups, it it is absolutely fascinating that they are working 
together. There's probably no better example in the New Testament of the old adage, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's what's taking place here. The Pharisees and Herodians, they would have agreed on almost nothing. But the thing that united them was a commitment to get rid of Jesus. They both saw Jesus as a problem and that he needed to be dealt with. The Pharisees were, uh, and don't take this the wrong way, to use a modern term, they were probably the equivalent of uh, the moral majority. These were the groups, this was a group of people that, at least on the surface, had a very sound concern for the nation of Israel. Now, in the New Testament, we see that Pharisees oftentimes have a pretty negative um, uh, connotation, and that's because Jesus uh, speaks to their hypocrisy. But if we're being honest, if we're considering Jesus' own perspective, minus the hypocrisy, Jesus agrees most, in, uh, most of all with the, the Pharisees in his day. These are people who are committed to a return to the morals of Israel's past. They say the key for us as a nation to be successful, uh, to, to earn God's blessing, is for us to return to the law of the Old Testament, to the virtues of the Old Testament. And if we do that, then God is going to be with us. And they were opposed to Roman rule. And yes, they paid their taxes, but they did it only begrudgingly through gritted teeth. So that's the Pharisees on one hand, but then on the other hand, we have the Herodians. And the Herodians were those who achieved a fair bit of political power, a social power under the rule of Herod the Great and under his sons. Now, they may not have loved the idea of Roman rule, but they were pragmatists at their heart. And they saw that what they had under Herod was better than what they could expect reasonably or otherwise. They saw benefit to Herod being in charge. And so even though it might not be their favorite thing, they recognize, you know what, it's, it's going to be okay because this benefits us as a whole, especially because they were in positions of political and social power. These two groups, polar opposites on their view of how do we interact with the government. And yet they have joined together in their hatred for Jesus. And they come to Jesus with this question. Now Mark tells us that this isn't a genuine question, that they're not actually interested in Jesus' answer to this question. They only want to discredit him. And yet, they ask him a question. It's an important question. One that each and every one of us should wrestle with. What is this question? Well, that's the how of verse 14. And they came to him and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Let's stop right there for a moment. What a great backhanded compliment that is. They start their trap with insincere flattery of Jesus. They don't believe a word of what they just said about Jesus. Jesus knows that. Tells us in verse 15 that he understood the hypocrisy of their hearts. He asked this question, why are you trying to trap me? He knows that this isn't a genuine question, that they don't actually believe, the, believe this. But, but the irony of this, this statement from the religious leaders is that everything they said is true. Everything they said about Jesus is true about Jesus, and it's completely not true about them. They thought that they were the ones who were in the right, that they were the ones who were committed to faithfully teaching the word of God, but not Jesus. 
The irony, of course, is that Jesus is faithfully committed to the way of God. And these Pharisees, these Herodians, they only care about appearances. Jesus, for his entire life, has been concerned only with being faithful to his Father, no matter the cost. That's why there's so much conflict between him and the religious leaders, is because he doesn't care about their opinion. He doesn't care about appearances. He's not swayed by what the crowd wants from him. He's fully committed to being faithful to the message of the kingdom. Same cannot be said for the Pharisees and the Herodians and the religious leaders. Everything they do is calculated not to lose social capital, not to lose the popularity that they believe they have with the crowds. And so in the last chapter, we saw them calculating, well, should we condemn John the Baptist or not? How will the crowds respond? Verse 32 of Mark 11, they were afraid of the people. For they all held that John was really a prophet. Same question, do we condemn Jesus or not? Well, how can we get rid of him without losing too much of the crowd? Mark 12, verse 12, And they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. So they left him and went away. You know, it's not the main point of this passage, but, but I do think it's good for us to pause and as we see this contrast between Jesus and the religious leaders that Jesus is faithful he's he's not swayed by appearances he's not going to be changing he's, he's not wishy-washy on on things he just wants to be faithful to God's word and the religious leaders who everything that they do is just concerned about well what will make me popular what about us what about us in our own lives? Is our commitment to the gospel complete no matter what public opinion may say? Are we like the Jews who stood opposed to Jesus here, masters of, of just reading the room and saying, all right, well, if I say this, then I know how people are going to respond, but, but, but instead I'm going to say this so that way I can, I can keep the crowd on my side. I can stay on everyone's good side, no matter the consequences, no matter what I have to sacrifice and compromise along the way. What about each and every one of us? Let's keep reading. Verse 14. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now notice, as we already mentioned, that there is this great irony and this flattery of the Pharisees and the Herodians, but it's also a strategic move on their part. It's a part of their trap of Jesus. They don't believe what they just said about Jesus, but they know that Jesus believes that about himself. They know that the crowds believe that about Jesus, and so they're about to ask him a question that is going to force him to double down on that. They say, Jesus we know that you claim that you don't actually care about anyone's opinion. We know that you claim that, that you're fully committed to teaching the way of God no matter what other people may see. Let's go ahead and test that theory. Taxes. Should we pay them or should we not? And they think they have Jesus trapped. At first glance, 
especially in understanding the context of that day. It seems like a pretty full, true, uh, foolproof trap for them. Very, peop- very few people in the first century loved Roman occupation. If you did, you were a traitor. The crowds that flocked to Jesus in large part did so because they thought he was going to establish this heavenly kingdom. God's forever kingdom would come through Jesus by kicking out the Romans. And one of the reasons why Jesus is so popular is because they believed he, just like every single one of them, would get rid of this plague on the people of Israel. The average first century Jew had a lot in common with the Pharisees. They despised the, taxi, the taxes that were levied upon them by Rome. Not only were they forced to pay Rome, but those taxes actually didn't go to, to good, important things like they do today. They went to pay the occupying army. So the taxes that you are paying are actually being paid to help them oppress you. It was a commonly held belief among the Jewish people that paying taxes was actually against God's plan for Israel. And so there's this underlying assumption from the people that Jesus, as this person who's, who's not swayed by appearances, he only teaches the way of God, there's this underlying assumption that Jesus is going to hold the same position. That Jesus despises Roman rule and that he is going to do anything that he can to get rid of Rome. There's just a problem. Rome doesn't take kindly to such an idea. They ruled with a, an iron fist and any public statement against paying taxes would be considered insurrection by the Roman authorities. Remember where Jesus is saying this. This conversation is taking place in the temple courts. Now, the Roman garrison was actually less than 100 yards away from where Jesus is at this moment. And so they're asking Jesus this question, and and if Jesus says, hey, you know what, you you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, word's going to get to that garrison pretty quickly. And Jesus is going to be arrested, and he's probably going to be killed. That's what took place about 25 years before Jesus. There was a man named Judas who was from Galilee. Uh, Acts chapter 5 actually mentions him just in passing. It says this, Remember Judas the Galilean, he rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. This tax was established in about 6 AD, and this man named Judas, he was from Galilee, refused to pay the tax. And because he, he postured his position as this commitment of religious faithfulness to God, he gathered quite a, a following, but the Romans, of course, didn't take too kindly to that, and they killed him, and the movement was scattered. And this is the trap that Jesus himself faces. If he says, don't pay taxes to Caesar, remember that garrison is less than 100 yards away, and they will come and arrest him and put him to death for insurrection. But if Jesus says, pay taxes to Caesar, he's going to lose the crowds. He may be safe, but the public opinion of him will wane. This man says he is not swayed by appearances and he will look very much like he cares about keeping himself safe and saving his life before Rome. And this is the dilemma that faces Jesus here. Does he actually care about appearances? Does he actually care about what people think of him? Is he actually going to try to keep himself safe? Is this all been a front? Will, will, the, will the crowds abandon him 
but he keeps his life because he says pay taxes to Caesar, or will he lose his life but keep the crowds by saying do not pay taxes to Caesar? The trap is set. Notice that Jesus responds to this question, not just with an answer, but actually with a challenge, and it's a challenge for each and every one of us, as well as the Pharisees and the Herodians. Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Jesus isn't caught off guard. Jesus isn't surprised by this. He knows that this isn't a genuine question about paying taxes. He knows that the issue of taxes is secondary to what is really going on, that people aren't actually interested in his viewpoint. They just want him gone. And so Jesus says, hey, why are you putting me to the test? But then Jesus actually tries to answer their question through an object lesson. Jesus asks for a denarius, which is the coin that was used to pay this tax in that day. Pastor Kurt up in Spirit Lake, he found a really helpful picture of what this denarius looked like. There's uh, the front and the back of what this, uh, what this coin looked like and, and why it is important for us to understand what it looked like as a part of Jesus' challenge. To understand the significance of this, we have to understand uh, that money in the first century was different than it is today. Today, money, we, all of our, our bills and our coins, they have a face on them, right? I think they all do. Yeah, they all have a coin. They all have a face on them. Uh, but that, for us, is really just a form of differentiating between different types of bills and different types of coins. That wasn't the case in the first century. In the first century, uh, money, currency, was actually a form of propaganda. And so whenever there was a new Roman emperor or whenever there was a new regime, they would actually start creating a new form of currency, new coins to commemorate their rule and reign. And so this is the coin that was popular or that was found in Jesus's day. It uh, included this picture on the left for you uh, is a picture of the Caesar of the Roman emperor. His name was Tiberius. And along that, you can't really see it too well, but were words that, that said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So it is this claim this propaganda from Rome that the emperor is semi-divine, that his father was divine, and he is as well. On the back side is a different picture. It is a picture of a woman, and there's some debate on whether this woman is the Roman goddess Pax, which means peace, or if it was a picture of, of Tiberius's mother. What's important for us is, is to notice that the words around it actually say high priest. And so this coin that Jesus asked for, this denarius would have been extremely offensive to Jews in his day. It is a form of idolatry for the people of Israel. It, broke, it breaks the first commandment to have no other gods, and it breaks the second commandment to have a graven image. In fact, some people say, and I, I don't no, I haven't seen this. There's some debate on this. Some say that the Jews of the first century actually had an exemption from the Roman government that they actually didn't have to use this coin. They could use just a blank piece of copper as their currency so that they didn't have to participate in this idolatry. So when Jesus asks them for a denarius, it's at least mildly surprising that they're able to find one, right? Especially here in the temple courts. 
You can at least comfortably say that the Pharisees and the Herodians, they lose some of their standing to be able to judge Jesus by, by being a good Jew and having this, this perfect view of, of how you are supposed to interact with the Roman government. They, they lose some of that standing. Don't, don't read too much into it because, remember, there are money changers nearby and there, there could have been one there as well. Verses 16 and 17. They, the Pharisees and Herodians, brought him one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now Jesus' response to them is absolutely astounding. Not only does he get out of the trap that they have set for them, but he also turns the challenge on each and every one of them as well as on us. So let's work our way through what Jesus says here. Jesus' argument hinges on this word likeness. Another way of translating this word is image. This coin has Caesar's likeness, it has Caesar's image on it, and so they should give to Caesar what has his image on it, what belongs to Caesar. He rejects all of these categories that were common in the first century. This category that said you can't be a faithful Jew, you can't be faithfully following God, while also paying your taxes. So consider the implications of Jesus' statement. First, he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. This is a, a recognition that God has instituted government. And because God has instituted government, part of a Christian's responsibility is for us to be as good of a citizen as we can. To be as good of a citizen as we are able to do so. Here in the United States, we're relatively spoiled in this regard. We may disagree very strongly with some of those who are in office. We may see examples of corruption and brokenness in our political system, and yet it pales in comparison to the brokenness of the political system in Jesus' day. The taxes that were levied on the people of Israel, as I mentioned, they weren't primarily used to support infrastructures like services and roads. The majority of these taxes were meant, went to pay the wages of the occupying military. They went directly into Caesar's pocket. They went directly into the governor's pocket. They were even used as hush money to, to stop rebellions far, in far-off places like Rome. You really couldn't find a more corrupt way of using tax money. What does Jesus say? Pay your taxes anyway. About the time of the start of the Iraq war in the early 2000s, there were a number of people who disagreed with the war. There were a number of pacifists who refused to pay a percentage of their taxes that went to the war effort. They said, I'll pay all of this, but I, I'm not going to be able to pay in good conscience this part of my taxes because of what it is being used for. I read earlier this week that there is a man in the Pacific Northwest who's taken a, a similar stance over the last decade and a half, one that probably hits a little closer to home for us as evangelical Christians. He said he cannot in good conscience pay his income taxes because of the government's stance on abortion. He says, I can't pay my taxes and be a faithful Christian because of what the government is doing with that money. Now, however well-intentioned these people may be, however sympathetic we may be to what someone who doesn't stand for abortion 
is doing with their money. Jesus, is, his point here is that you're, you're missing the exact same point, that, the, that the, you're, you're falling for the same misconception that we saw in the first century from his opposition. Jesus rejects this dichotomy. He says, it doesn't make sense, it doesn't follow that to pay your taxes is to participate in the wickedness of the government, whatever you think that might be. Jesus says, pay your taxes anyway. This recognition from Jesus that civil government is instituted by God, it doesn't make any value judgment about what the government is doing. Jesus doesn't say, hey, pay your taxes because they're actually being really faithful and good stewards of the money you're giving them. Pay your taxes because it is a, a good, solid government or political party in office. Jesus surely knew about the Roman system and the corruption that was taking place in that day. And yet he doesn't mention it. Jesus was fully aware of the idolatry of the denarius. Surely Jesus rejected that idolatry, that there was more than one God, that Augustus was a God, and yet he doesn't say anything about it. He says, pay your taxes. His view of government... Jesus' view of government is actually rooted in a very important part of Israel's history in the Old Testament. During the exile, we see that Israel, God's chosen nation, was actually uh, conquered and was sent into exile by this very corrupt, pagan, uh, idolatrous nation called Babylon. And this was a very formative time for the people of Israel. And what we see is that in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is talking about this time that is coming where they will be conquered by Babylon. And he says, this is what God is telling us to do as his people when we get to Babylon. And he doesn't say, I want you to lead a revolt against Babylon. I want you to, to plant your feet and refuse to participate in this corrupt form of government. What does he say? Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Pray for Babylon. Babylon is this common image throughout the Bible, especially in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation. It is this picture of those who are against God and his rule. God says, pray for Babylon. Seek its good. Be faithful to me. Babylon is wicked and pagan, and yet God says, seek its good. One of Jesus' favorite terms for himself in the Gospel of Mark is this term, son of man. Son of man is actually this title that comes from the book of Daniel. Where was Daniel written? Well, it was written in the Old Testament when Israel was in exile, and Daniel, this very faithful Jew, was thrust into this position of government in the corrupt Babylonian empire. And yet in the midst of this corruption and the wickedness of governments like Rome and Babylon, there is this resolute belief that God is the one who instituted this government. Daniel chapter 7 gives us a picture of these different beasts it's this apocalyptic language, and it can be somewhat confusing. But each of these different beasts represents a different government. 
We're not going to get into what exactly is being said here, but notice that all of them oppose God in some way. But also notice what it says about each of these governments. Daniel 7, verse 6. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Dominion was given to this government, to this nation, to this empire. The dominion of government has been given to it by God himself. For God himself is the one who is seated on the throne. Daniel 7, a few verses later, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Do you see the first implication of Jesus' teaching here when he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar? He is saying that no matter how much you may disagree with the government, no matter how much you may like this current form of government, you, as a part of being a faithful Christian under the rule of God, are called to be as good of a citizen as you possibly can be. Because God ultimately is the one who has instituted each government. The ones we agree with and the ones that we do not agree with. God is the one who gives dominion to Babylon and to Rome, even if they are opposed to the message of the gospel. So seek its good and seek its welfare. Yet there's another implication here from Jesus' words of render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. When he says that, when he says that there are things that belong to Caesar, by implication he is also saying there are things that do not belong to Caesar. Give to Caesar what belongs to him, but that also implies there are some things that Caesar has no claim on in your life. Caesar cannot make a claim of certain parts of your life. In the first century, the church would willingly pay taxes to Caesar like they were required to do so, and yet they would not burn incense to Caesar. Burning incense was a form of worship. And the government demanded both of these things. They demanded people pay their taxes, and they also demanded worship for Caesar. And to be a Christian in the first century... You would say, I will do all I can. I will give Caesar what is Caesar's, but I will not give Caesar what belongs to God alone. And this is true, I think, today as well. We live in a very, very hyper-politicized culture, don't we? I think it's actually now harder to talk about politics than it is to talk about your faith, which is just insane. I get worried about the church today when it comes to this topic. I really do. I love living in the United States. I'm so thankful for living here. And yet, I think sometimes our political ideologies, whether you lean left or right, 
whether you're an independent, whatever you say, wherever you stand on the spectrum, sometimes they demand more of us than we are able to give. Sometimes they ask more of us than we are able to give. But they demand that we surrender all allegiance to them. And if we don't toe the party line, whatever that party line may be, then we're in danger of wrath. There are some areas of your life Caesar has no claim. Government has no claim over certain parts of your life. You need to render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. Be as good of a Christian as you possibly can be by being as good of a citizen as you possibly can be. But there are some things that the the government, that Caesar, that political parties, that they cannot ask of you. Because those things belong solely to God. And that brings us to Jesus' final statement. He teaches us not just to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, but also to render to God the things that are God. And I mentioned earlier that this word likeness is an important word in this passage. Here's where that comes into play. If the denarius has Caesar's likeness and Caesar's image on it and therefore should be given to Caesar, then it follows that whatever bears God's likeness, whatever bears God's image, should be given to God. The question, of course, is what bears God's image? Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. There are certain civic responsibilities that each and every one of us have under every government in the world that we are called to give to them. No matter how much you may wish it was different. And because God is still seated on his throne and he is the one who has instituted every government that has ever existed and will ever exist, whatever you owe to the government, God says give it. But far more importantly is this charge to render to God the things that belong to God. That's you. That's me. You're created in God's image. You bear God's image. And if Caesar deserves what bears his image, then how much more does God deserve what bears his? We've seen Jesus mention this time and time again in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus isn't interested in partial allegiance. Jesus isn't interested in convenient followers. He's not interested in lordship over 10% or 20% or even 99% of your life. He looks at you, he looks at me, and he says, give me that which bears my image. Give me all of you. 
You see how this passage is saying far much more than how we interact with the government of our day. It's saying so much more than that. It's not about your allegiance to a political party. It's not about your allegiance to a, a government or a nation. It's about your allegiance to the Ancient of Days and to the Son of Man, the one who will have dominion forever and ever. And so as we come to the end of this passage, that's the question that's raised. What is your response? What what is your response to Jesus' challenge? Verse 17, note the end of it. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they did. And they believed. And they marveled at him. How do the Pharisees and Herodians respond to Jesus' challenge? Mark tells us that they marveled at him. Every time this word is used in the Gospel of Mark, it refers to this bewilderment, this amazement, this we are absolutely stunned right now, and yet there is no response of faith or obedience or repentance. The the Pharisees, the the religious leaders, they hear what Jesus has said, and they are absolutely floored by it. They are shocked that Jesus was able to get out of this trap. They know that he is challenging them when he says, render to God the things that are God. By implication, he is saying, you are not doing that. And instead of responding by, by surrendering all of their lives to the king, Instead of giving everything to God that belongs to God, they instead just stand stunned. Not with faith, not with repentance, not with obedience, but simply by marveling at him. What about you? As we come to the end of this passage, the burden of the challenge shifts from them 2,000 years ago, to every single one of us. Am I giving God the things of God? Am I surrendering everything in allegiance to the king on the cross, to the ancient of days, to the son of man? Am I responding with faith in who he is, this king who is on a cross? Am I responding with faith to what he has done for me, that he has borne my sin, that he has borne my shame on the cross? Am I responding with obedience to whatever he asks of me, I will give to him, that I hear the call of the gospel to come and lay my life down, to come and die and do exactly that? Am I responding with surrender and full-hearted allegiance to the king? Or am I holding on to, to certain areas of my life, stubbornly refusing to give them to the king who is on the cross? We're going to close in song. And as we do so, I just encourage you to, to think about that. To take a moment to examine your hearts, to examine your lives, to consider, is there an area of my life that I haven't given to Jesus? I think I mentioned this uh, several months ago as we were going through the Gospel of Mark. Today, in our culture, when we talk about Christianity, we oftentimes talk about language of commitment. I made a commitment to follow Jesus. 
fact, even as I'm thinking about it, one of the songs we're about to sing kind of makes, has that same language. Um, I have committed to following Jesus. But the language of the gospel is, is different. Its language is surrender. It's to surrender all claims upon our lives for the one who is seated on the throne because he was first hung on a cross. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we long to be a people who surrender all of our lives to you. Who give everything that you ask of us to you. To be a people who are not just half-hearted followers. To not just be convenient Christians. But Lord, to be those who surrender everything at the foot of the cross because of what you have done for us. Help us to be a people who hear the call of the gospel and respond with faith and repentance. Even now, even this morning, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray.